Hello, everyone. Robert Walker here, along with Caleb Pierce, and we are Sheep Things Podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to get down to the basics with industry leaders, associations, breeders, owners, vets, suppliers, and anyone else we can find to hear their stories and firsthand experiences. Hopefully, we will ask the right questions to see what makes them successful, how they got started, and what they see for the future of the sheep industry. We hope to have something new weekly that we can share, so stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates as they are published. Stay tuned as we try to share our learning experience with you all as we dive into the sheep industry together. Hello, everyone. This is episode 16 of the Sheep Things podcast. Today's episode will be a continuation of our conversation with Dan Turner of You Right Lamb Farms in Shippensburg, PA. Today, uh, we talk a little bit more about uh, Dan's management and where he's been and where he's going and uh, a few more uh, in-depth on... um, management styles and 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 actually breeds and different types of animals and stuff that he's tried i've tried and uh so hopefully uh you guys will enjoy this episode so so dan uh you mentioned scottish a couple times are, are you a are, do you have a scottish background uh no not that i'm aware of i i just uh okay i just find it uh, interesting and and uh you know i'm i'm secure enough in my manhood that I do have a kilt and uh well I was going to say I, I can see you in I, a kilt. I wear a uh, utila kilt and so okay. what it is it's a leather leatherish kilt with a bunch of pockets in it for all the different tools whenever you're working out in the field huh. and and now if I'm not mistaken uh there's some other kind of hobby you got that that's kind of um kind of different um and i forgot we've talked about this in the past i think it could be blacksmithing Uh, i don't know it might have been blacksmith i I have an interest in hot metals so i also uh i volunteer at a place and we uh at an iron furnace and we that's it that's what we talked about was your because you you do yeah. Yes, that's what it's, that's what we, we talked about. Pour molten aluminum and and we make uh, we do sand castings, uh, and, yeah, and, and demonstrate the uh, you know it's a it's not a lost art, but there's many people that don't understand uh, how you can you know pour aluminum and and make something out of it. Uh-huh. So so let me ask you a question: How hard would it be to to make a um, a katahdin? Uh, an aluminum katahdin what, what would that cost and how hard would well, that somebody be? needs to carve the katahdin first you need a mold that's the hard yeah. part couldn't we do that with 3d printing nowadays yes. so okay so if i had a katahdin uh you would you would still have to you could do it 3d printing but again someone has to model that animal 3d Right. right. Someone has to render it. And then, then like I have a 
3D printer it worked and then you would have to uh, just take that rendering and put it into the right software and print it out. Hmm. That'd be kind or of cool. somebody just takes a piece of wood and carves one, you know, I mean, that's, that's, uh, and then, then you could, you could, uh, cast that and auction it off at the, uh, at the expo. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, I'm gonna get rid of my screen that I shared here. It was blocking my view. <laughs> I think we've lost. Yeah. Um, on a, on a hobby front, I've got a lot of hobbies. So one of my hobbies is is collecting hobbies, and I, I just like the variety of stuff. Yeah, I am bad too. Uh, let me see if I've got one of my hobbies laying around here. I kind of quit doing it once I got got into sheep. Was I was making? I, I bought a small lay and was doing oh, pens, yeah. and uh, and I really liked that hobby. I swore I had one here today, actually. Um, I've made I've made a pen out of sheep feed, out of sheep poop, <laughs> um, various. Because I'm one of these guys that I'm like, well, that looks like it'd be fun. So I, I you go out and spend a thousand or two or whatever, and you make a few things. You're like, eh, that was all right. Yeah. You could have just bought the pen or paid somebody to do it for you. Now I got two lays and all these tools and I haven't used them in probably six, seven, eight years. You know, once, once I got tied up or picked up another hobby, you know? <laughs> but it, it's very, Oh, I, I don't, I just had it. The other, it must be in the car. I made the, my coolest pen is a lamb jawbone. So I took the jawbone of a lamb without the teeth and I resin cast it in a, uh, like an iridescent blue color. And, uh, and that when you turned it out, it is so cool. I, I could sell a lot of those if I had the time to do it. Huh. Yeah. But, but probably couldn't get the value of my time that I, yeah. you know, that I had in it, but yeah. Well, so, uh, what's the difference? So you started out with the Icelandic, you know, I hear a lot of guys uh, in some hobby groups talk about, you know, how great they are and and all this stuff. And and I don't know anybody other than you that's had any. So, um, how would they compare? What have you seen the pluses and minuses uh, versus a Katahdin? Other than the shearing part, if you didn't have to shear an Icelandic, uh, difference in weights, difference in yeah uh maternal traits yeah i think they had good maternal traits uh and uh i i think i only ever got twins i'm not sure i ever got triplets out of any icelandics okay uh and and i didn't get the best genetics these were calls that somebody else was getting rid of and uh and so i just got them you know for dog toys yeah uh, right but but they weren't very large either they they, the, right. the, the largest might have been 120 pounds, you know, so like, and then they had horns. So with the horns, they were getting stuck in the fence, and, <laughs> and that's just a mess. So I experiment. my experiment with wool was probably 200-pound dorsets. And uh, if you thought wrestling a 100-pound Icelandic was fun. Yeah. 
<laughs> you should have come to my house for that rodeo. Yeah. <laughs> and and so you, you mentioned the Dorpers. Um, I, I get into conversations with a lot of people that they think you can just go buy a Dorper, you know, and magically you have a better, you know, F1 cross. And and my my response is always there's good mm-hmm. and bad of every breed. Just because cause I've had some Dorpers too. Just because you bought a Dorper don't mean it was yeah. a good one. And and just just because you got cats doesn't mean it's a good one. So crossing two mediocre animals from a, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a better one versus just buying a better animal of your breed of choice. Because um, I, I was in uh, Goldthwaite, Texas, probably a month ago, and went to their weekly uh sale man there's a lot of nice dorpers there you know and in west texas i mean that's dorper mm. king you know uh you would have played hard to sell them a katahdin <laughs> uh you know so uh so yeah just because you cross two two breeds doesn't mean that neither one of them were good for either breed you know yeah the the uh out of the five dorpers we we had one there was a constant, a consistent twinner, and her lambs grew well, uh, and they always got weaned. So she's still here, and uh, uh, we we don't have any. We haven't kept any of her progeny yet, but uh, if we got right. some nice ewe lambs out of her, we probably would. And right, and you're you're breeding her with a katahdin, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've seen any other kind of rams when we were there. Yeah, no, they were, it's all Katahdin rams. Mm-hmm. And and the, so the Dorper experiment really, maybe I had, you know, not the best Dorpers, whatever that was, it just didn't work for me. But I didn't feel the need to go out and buy more Dorpers yeah. to, to make sure I was right. Yeah, and were they white Dorpers or black-headed Dorpers? or? Yeah, black-headed Dorpers. Okay. Which was the, and I thought they would sell good because they remind you a little bit of a boar goat and everybody, you know, pays good money for boar goats. So I thought the uh, Dorper would have the same appeal, but it, uh, it just wasn't working for us. Yeah. Yeah. Early on, I, when I first started doing sheep, I was like, they kind of, those black headed Dorpers kind of have the coloring of a, of a suffolk. Like you could, you could take one of those, sheep and put up against the sapphic and then i actually looked at him and i was like that dorper's it could walk underneath that sapphic and (laughs) (laughs) right come up to its knees (laughs) well so you know we got we got into it we even bought the tools to dock their tails oh yeah uh because we were really going to do the dorper thing okay but we've never docked the dorper tail because it just didn't even get off the ground the first lambing. Yeah. So I, my first four ewes that I bought come from a guy that had Dorpers 20 years ago and he converted to Katahdin's and, um, he, he was an old school, uh, sheep guy that had wool sheep back in the day and then went to Dorpers and then converted to Katahdin's and he Mm -hmm. still doctor tails because he couldn't, he, he never, he couldn't stand the thought of yeah. a sheep with a tail. And so my first four sheep didn't have tails. And, uh, once I started having lambs and keeping the tails, uh, 
man, it was so weird. You know, I, I see where he's coming from. You're not used to seeing a tail and everything. The yeah. tails look funny. Yeah. Well, we've, you know, uh, but it was, it was easy to tell, tell those four years apart. Yeah. When we first tails. started the guy we got him from, he, he docked all the tails. And so, um, you know, he, he told us, he was like, Oh, if you don't dock the tails, you're going to just have a mess. You're going to have flash strike and it's going to be terrible. Yeah. And he, he got us all worked up. And so that first year lambing, we had one new lamb and a whole bunch of ram lambs. And so we docked that one new lamb and we're like, let's just leave the ram lambs. We'll see what happens. They're going to the butcher anyways. And then we're like, okay, that was not a problem. Leave the tail. Breed standard is to leave the tail. Don't have to worry about issues if we leave the tail. You don't have to worry about tetanus or all the hassle of trying to dock all the tails. So why don't we just leave the tail? And from then on, I have sheep with, with tails. It, all tails. It, it, uh, it just helps my narrative that that uh, sheep are kind of like miniature cows that have twins. They just they have to have, obviously, different management. But they look more like a cow when, when they have the tail. So <laughs> it works out. Yeah, my uh, my biggest uh, complaint was that when people would come to the house, they would accuse me of having dorpers, you know. And I'm like, just because they don't have tails, obviously you guys don't study confirmation, or you could tell they, you know, they weren't a dorper. But uh, but yeah, everybody associated no tails with no tails and white sheep were obviously dorpers. So. Uh, Anyway. Yeah, I've never had any problems with the tails on. As as a matter of fact, I think with the tails on, you can tell if you've got a problem with coccidia. Uh, mm-hmm. you can, right. Oh, yeah, you sure. can just see things will show up quicker, I think, with the tail on, and, and you can't deny it. So now you're going to have to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, I, like, I like having the tails. Uh, the only negative, I think, at all is that you can't really see sometimes when they're bagged up. Uh, you just, you know, and, and, and you just can't see right there before they birth uh, how ready they are. But uh, I think I like the telltale sign of, of seeing a nice clean back end uh, with a tail on means that they have not had any problems for a while. Mm-hmm. So now speaking of coccidia, do you, uh, use decox in your mineral or feed or what, what do you prevent or you yeah. are you more preventive or or fix it when it happens no we use decox in the feed uh so yeah the way that we we really operate here is it's mostly forage bait uh, <clears throat> but six weeks before the ewes will lamb we we will start them on pellets on like a 16 percent uh, crude protein pellet mm-hmm. and in that pellet will be decox okay so then we will keep pellets here on the farm uh until probably our last ram lamb is sold uh and then we'll go for maybe uh four months or so or maybe three months without any any supplemental feed being done uh so yeah, we like the decox and, uh, and we like to give them a break from the decox so that it does make a difference whenever we introduce it again the next year. Yeah. Like if, if we're going to lamb mid February, January one, we would start uh, introducing the, the pellets and decox. 
Okay. So tell us maybe a little bit then about your lambing system. So then after, you know, after you fed them that decox for a little bit, uh, do you guys lamb them? I'm assuming you lamb them in your barn now. Um, do you jug each of the ewes? How long do you jug them for if you do? Um, or do you kind of just let them lamb in a, in a larger pen and um, fend for themselves? Yeah, so, it, and, and since we started out in the field with no facilities yeah. at all, <laughs> you know, we've done it every way that you can imagine uh, from totally in the field to where we're like, hey, there's lambs out there. Uh, <laughs> and you just watch them grow uh, to where, hey, there's lambs out there. I'm going to go tag them uh, and weigh them today. Mm-hmm. And I need my net on the end of the six foot pole so I can catch the lambs today because they're more <laughs> than an hour old and they're going to run from me. Yeah. Uh, and we would then mark down the mom and the lambs and let them still be in the field uh, to where they were in lambing in the field. And we were then gathering the lambs and putting them in what we call the lamb tram. And then the mom would come in because she's following the lambs and we would close the door and we would tow that between behind the golf cart up and around and into uh, our equipment shed where we would have lambing jugs that are about four foot by five foot set up. And we would then put the lambs and offload the mom into the lambing jugs. Uh, Then we went to, uh, going into the barn where we actually have a, a, whenever we set it up, we have an area referred to as the drop zone. So we will, uh, about a week before they go to, you know, that the lambing date is ready. Uh, we will lock them into that area and now they're getting pellets and Mm -hmm. they're getting hay and they are being monitored by cameras 24 seven. Yeah. And so then, uh, you know, it's just a a matter of time and we, we lamb in groups. So, uh, it's normally three groups. So we'll bring group one in and, uh, most of group one will lamb within their two week window. Uh, but, a week before group two is ready to go, uh, they come in and mingle in with group one in the same drop zone. And what happens there is as soon as we see lambs hit the ground, uh, even if it's in the middle of the night, and a lot of people are like, I don't see why you do that. I just go out in the morning. Well, I think it's the maternal instincts of the Katahdins that you might have, if you're not watching and you don't see exactly <laughs> what happened, all of a sudden you have a mom that you think had triplets and you've got another mom that has twins. And in reality, you don't know whose were whose, or you have a mom that didn't even lamb yet that has stolen a lamb Mm -hmm. from a mom that had triplets and, and she's got two and the, the uh, thief has one. So we play that. We, we try to get them as soon as we can to avoid that even when we play the cameras back you got to really look close to be able to tell sometimes which lamb goes to which you when you go out in the morning and there's eight lambs out there it's it's uh who whose are these so 
we try to identify them right away. If I need to get up at three in the morning, I look, I roll over, I look at my laptop. I can tell whether there's lambs there or not. If there are, I go out and I'll gather up what I've got. I uh, tag them. Well, no, I won't tag them yet. I'll just, I weigh them and I dip their navels and I make sure they have buttholes. And I will then put those lambs and the ewe into a lambing jug. And, you know, they're tucked away for the day then. Mm -hmm. Then, Have you ever had any that didn't have yeah, a Yeah, it's kind of a joke, but... Yeah, I I thought uh, I thought buttholes were like opinions that everybody had one, but uh, about three years ago I had this little lamb that that uh, he got to be three days old and he was he was swelling up and and just seemed to be uncomfortable and he was acting like he was starved uh, and uh, you know I. I do all my uh, all my research online, so I found out that he needed a vegetable oil enema because he must have been constipated. So I come inside, get some of my wife's cooking oil, put it in a little plastic syringe, and I go out there and I lift his tail, and I was just stunned that there was no place to put this oil. So... Wow. So I realized what his problem was, uh, and and then the next day I just had to uh, uh, deal with that, yeah. but put him out of his misery. And yeah, I've never I've never experienced that. And uh, and and a guy at a feed store probably he's probably forty miles from here. Uh, his second year with sheep, he had a two headed lamb. Oh, wow! And. Uh, yeah, I went down to look at it, and uh, of course, it was born dead. And and I'm like, man, it, if that would have happened, my first lambing with my first four ewes, I would have never had sheep. I would have got <laughs> out. I mean, if my first lambing had a sheep with no butthole or a two-headed lamb, I would have just quit. Yeah, they have a know. in the museum out here. They have a two-headed calf mounted on the the wall, yeah. um, but I haven't heard of that with a lamb. Yeah, I got I got pictures of it. I'll send you. It's yeah. pretty freaky looking. Was it was it fairly small? I mean, how, I I'm trying to imagine lambing with a two headed lamb. <laughs> no, it it looked uh, normal. I mean, seriously, it looked like a. Of course, he had a Saint Croix Katahdin okay. mix, uh, and so it was probably a tad smaller yeah. than what we were used to. But uh, but it was probably a seven uh-huh. eight pound lamb, you know. Yeah, I saw one on Facebook this year that they said was delivered normal. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, he had no idea and and found it, you know, the next morning when he went to the store and seen it laying out in his field and <laughs> just had this holy crap, you gotta he called me and said, You gotta come look at this. I'm like, Heck yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> not awesome to it'd be awesome to see, but yeah. not awesome to have. Well, yeah, I, I, mean, I come up with some problems sometimes and I, I talk to somebody and they're like, you know, Dan after you have a couple thousand lambs, you're going to see a lot of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was, I think it was my second year. I ended up with the hermaphrodite lamb and I was like, I was super excited because, you know, trying to grow the flock. I'm like, yeah, you. And then the thing's going up. I'm like, it's growing a mane. It's kind of looking like a ram. <laughs> What's the deal with this you lamb? It's like, Oh, 
our vet came out. He was like, oh, yeah, about one every 10,000. You'll get that. I'm like, I've had 25 lambs so far. I get why. <laughs> what do you mean one of every 10,000? <laughs> but, uh, no, I think it was a genetic thing from that. Either that yeah, or you, that you, but attracted. I just I just had one. And, uh, and that can be a major problem because we didn't realize it until actually Tom Hodgman was here. Mm. And he was watching this you in with, with another group of yous. And he's like, what's wrong with that you? And I said, you mean her horns? She had some beautiful horns on her. They curled the whole way around. As a matter of fact, they were so nice. Whenever I slaughtered her, I saved the cape and the head. And I'm going to have her wall mounted. That's how nice she was. This wow. just happened this year. And so uh, I said, I, I you know, I... He said, no, I think she's a hermaphrodite. And I said, what do you mean? He said, look how she's mounting all the other ewes. I said, well, yeah, some of them do that. He's there, yeah, but that's, that's all she's doing. So we looked at it. She hadn't lambed the first year, like many do. Uh, and then she didn't lamb the second year. And other girls that she was in with, we had a kind of a lower percentage of lambing for that group. And then what we found out whenever we threw her in with the breeding group is she was fighting the rams off oh. and she was trying to possess the girls. So she was controlling the flock and she had horns. So she was beating the rams up huh. and they weren't getting their time with the ladies. Uh, so it can really mess you up if you don't pick out those, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the alpha uh, mm. hermaphrodites, I might say. Yeah. So there's there's lots of little weird things that that can can be a problem that you don't even recognize. Yeah. Yeah. I know somebody that uses don't, don't they use it as a don't. as a teaser ram. Um, they kept it back and they'd put it in them with their use and because the hormones and everything would work just like a teaser ram and they'd put the ram in like a week later. <laughs> there you go everybody'd be all cycling and right on time and right all in in synchronization and it worked <laughs> yeah don't don't the females control us all anyway i mean let's be real caleb might not know that yet but me and dan yeah. know it <laughs> yeah well yeah stick stick around caleb we'll help you out man <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, I think Karen, I think Karen, used yeah, that, that's what I was teaser. thinking of. And I, I was out there a couple of years ago and I saw that thing and man, I, I don't know about yours, Dan, but the ones I've had over the years, they, they're, I mean, they've obviously got so many hormones, their brain just isn't quite working right. And, uh, they're a little crazy. And anyways, this one that, that Karen had, it was like, yeah, it's 200, 300 pound, massive, kind of crazy sheep. And it's like, you don't really want to be in the pen with that thing. <laughs> a ram's at least predictable. But, yeah. Yeah, mine looks so gorgeous. So I, I, I really wanted her to be a you. Yeah. He was awesome. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so tell us maybe a little bit about your market. Um, how do you guys market your lambs? How has that changed over the years as you've grown your flock? Um, you know, obviously when you start off with those, those few, uh, Icelandics, you didn't have 
probably a market in mind. Um, and now you're, you're raising, you know, 250 U's and lambing them every year. Um, how has obviously your market's changed a lot? How have you grown with that? Um, what do you guys do now? Yeah, when we got into it, we weren't into it for providing seed stock. We, uh, we thought it was all going to be towards meat and that the use uh, that performed well would just be maintained in our flock and we would move the other ones on as, as burger or uh, some type of meat stick or something like that. Mm-hmm. So at first what I, I did was I was promoting and, and selling meat uh, basically one lamb pack at a time and taking it to a USDA uh, butcher shop and yeah. and I do five or six lambs at a time and then I would take them and sell them to the people that uh, you know that had placed their orders and we did sell a certain amount to the ethnic uh, for the ethnic holidays mm-hmm. uh, and and that turned out to be probably our most profitable uh, at, at the beginning, that was the most profitable season that we had yeah. because we're always spring lambing. So we'd never had them ready in time for Easter. Uh, but we found that the, uh, uh, some of the ethnic holidays just felt perfect for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, over time and, and selling to the butcher shops, it just became more difficult that you had to have, uh, appointments, uh, maybe a month or six weeks ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And some of the people just were bulking at the price that I was asking, which uh, was, you know, it's, it's the price that I need for the lamb. Yeah. The price that the butcher shop charges, uh, the shrinkage and all that adds up. And all of a sudden you're at, at darn close 10 bucks a pound. And yep. that just wasn't wasn't the budget for a lot of people. So we 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 actually did better at the Carlisle livestock market, just taking you know fifteen twenty lambs at a time there and dropping them off. Yeah. So that's how we got. To- Is that a weekly sale or monthly sale? Yeah, that's or? a weekly sale. And we also took a, a nice size load to New Holland. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was curious how that. Carlisle sale could compete with New Holland being so close to you. I think it helps the uh, prices at Carlisle because New Holland's so close. Oh yeah. So the and saves you a yeah, trip. The issue with know. New Holland by the we weighed them all, then we took them, and whenever we got paid, our shrinkage was ten percent. Hmm. So even if the prices at Carlisle are ten percent less or fifteen percent less, yeah. I do better at Carlisle because it's so much closer uh, and I don't have the shrinkage. Mm-hmm. So realistically, you know, if the Carlisle price is 10% less, I get the same amount of money uh, and I've saved myself a couple hours going to New Holland. Yeah. So I've had guys tell me that um, in their experience that the animals will lose most all their shrink in the first say 10 miles you know the first so many miles of travel and that once you hit that point 
then it doesn't matter if you're driving seven or eight hours or, or two hours. If, if you, of course, you didn't notice that you're close enough to Carlisle that you probably didn't reach that point. Uh, yeah, I've never heard that. And because once, once you lose your gut feel, you, there's nothing left, you know. Right. So what I did at first and and for many years is I would take them to work in the morning, and I had a fenced-in area there, and they would graze all day long. Then I would run them over to the market at about five o'clock in the evening uh, as I'm getting off work. Yeah. But, but with the same logic, realistically, they can lose that gut fill uh, after being at the market for an hour. Yes. So, so it almost yeah, it doesn't I mean, matter where they're going. My horses, uh, if you ever into horses, a horse will do that. The, so you can step one on a trailer and uh and then step him off in two minutes and it's too late yeah they do it on purpose so we'll we'll sell a decent amount of animals right here at the farm so yeah uh you know for those guys there is no shrinkage you just uh somebody will right. show up and say hey i want to buy 50 of them i say well i have scales uh you want to you know we can run them across there and uh you know if there's any i've not had anybody question my scales but uh, you know, it's the best thing we've got, and we just make a deal at so much. Uh, you know, we'll weigh them all out, and then it's a deal of so much per animal. And uh, and so so one way that our the biggest way our market has changed is whenever we joined NSIP, mm -hmm. and we started to get EBVs on our animals, we mostly did it so that we could improve our flock that we would be looking at uh, making sure that any of the ewe lambs uh, that, that we retained were going to be of the right quality. And that's what we were gonna trust NSIP to be telling us. Yeah. And we, we also expected that NSIP would tell us which rams to breed to which ewes, but it doesn't actually go that far. That's something you have to figure it out on your own, but using the numbers, it is doable. So once we started into the NSIP, we realized that uh, there were traits with some of our animals that actually made them good breeding stock. Mm -hmm. So instead of selling some of these for meat, we should be selling these to other people for uh, starting flocks or for adding to their flocks or, uh, you know, so we have yeah. a nice market now of selling proven ewes. Nice. We're selling, yeah. selling ewes that are two or three years old and they're, they're what our best genetics were two or three years ago. So mm -hmm. it's not that bad because we've been using good NSIP rams, and so our EBVs uh, are all, you know, documented, and I can show you what it is that you're buying. Yeah. So then the, the breeding stock started taking off, and the proven use sell out, and people constantly are, are, you know, almost up till February even, they're still wanting to buy pregnant use. And you're like, look, 
anything that's still pregnant after <laughs> like December one is most probably going to lamb here. And, and we're fine with that. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't breed them to sell them as bred ewes. We offer proven ewes and we will breed them mm-hmm. uh, if you want them bred. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the way we operate that. So we're able to get rid of. Now we do have, you know, there are certain ewes that we just won't allow to go into somebody's flock. They're just not going to be, they've been a problem for us and they're going to be a problem for you. So they're going to turn into snack sticks. Uh, and the, so we're selling animals that we truly believe will still perform for several or many years, uh, after they're, after they're on someone else's farm. Yeah. Uh, and then we breed with maybe their bread proven use. So they're being bred with rams that are here that have really good EBVs. So that person should get started pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you say rams with really good EBVs um, and, and how you've you know, used them throughout the years. And I, I've seen some of them and you, you certainly have some with some nice numbers. Um, what's kind of your selection criteria as far as like what do you prioritize? Um, has that changed over the years as you've kind of maybe you know, looked for holes in your flock and tried to patch it? Or how have you um, selected your rams and then what does your selection look like now? Yeah, the the biggest that what we really have going for us, it seems like we're covered in the number of lambs born and number of lambs weaned, mm-hmm. and so that that part we've got, we've really in the last couple of years gone for the parasite resistance, so we're we're bringing that in, and it's just going to be, uh, we're just going to have to stay on that to to be able to make sure that that we are where we want to be there. The uh, maternal weaning weight is actually one of our weaker EBVs. Okay. So we're looking at that and we used a RAM for years that was uh, minus one with maternal weaning weight. And that's mm-hmm. a, yeah. that, that's, I, I don't really understand how it all works because you could have a, a lamb that's let's say a minus 0.5 maternal weaning weight, but yet it's weaning weight is a 3.6 or a four. Mm-hmm. And so look at it and say, well, I don't care what it's maternal weaning weight is as long as it's actually performing whenever yeah. it's, you know, growing and, and being weaned. Yeah. And I think there used to be a, from what I understand anyway, it's a milk plus growth EBV that used to combine them. So then you could kind of see at that, you know, that weight age, what is their weight going to be based off of both? I mean, you can, you can do it manually, obviously, but like you're pointing out, I mean, at your 60 day weight, you can have the weight being driven by the weaning weight, or you can have it being driven by the maternal weaning weight. Either way, you still see the pounds as long as they're getting adequate nutrition. And so now that's one um, EBV that I kind of wish we still had, but again, I guess you can just add them together and it all works out. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, that's kind of a nebulous EBV that we're missing, but I think to, you know, even though I don't understand it, uh, I don't want to necessarily doubt it. So mm-hmm. I do want to 
be bringing in uh, animals. I like to be able to see my animals at least at a 0.6, point, uh, uh, 0.7 maternal weaning weight. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so we've got a couple that are uh, looking really good and, and uh, you know, it's, it's funny how you'll bring in a ram with a high maternal weaning weight, but maybe he's bad on uh, parasites or he's bad on number of lambs born. Yeah. And, and so you, you've got to really watch how you're mixing them up. Uh, and then, then for us, we've got uh, some of them are still not registered yet. So we, you know, can only, we, we've got to watch there too. Uh, in that whenever we're breeding somebody that's not registered, uh, if it's a ram that's only uh, maybe out of our own flock, 75% or something like that, yeah. we're not getting towards that 100% then. Hmm. Gotcha. Now, and one of the weird things, just a just side about NSIP almost, is that I kind of joke that our rams – really start to gain in EBVs after we sell them. So I, I have a, the first ram that we ever had out of a ewe that we call Quad Queen, who's right now like a 120.5 or something. Uh, once, once NSIP updates, you'll see that. But uh, she, had a, a, she had quads and she had a ram. And I said, you know, before we sell this ram, I want to use him. Yeah. So I put him on about 12 girls, uh, and then we sold him. And when we sold him, he was about a 105. <laughs> He's currently about a 116 right now, uh, <laughs> posthumously. And so it's like, man, should have kept that one. I have another Ram I sold at about a 108, and it's now like a 112 or something like that. Yeah. So you don't know what that Ram's going to be until you see its daughters and its granddaughters performing, but you can't keep every Ram for three years. Yeah. No, but, but I, I do think that if I, if I use a Ram, I'm keeping him until those first daughters have data. I, uh, Cause I've seen the same thing happen before. Uh, yeah. Good and bad. I've seen it yeah, go and up and drop. And, uh, so, so if it go, if you, if, cause I think, I think the NSI, there's not enough offspring, uh, daughters from a lot of these rounds we sell. And, uh, so, so for us to keep daughters, you need to keep that Ram. You don't need to let him get away yeah. just in case, well, you know, yeah, and you, you, you feel bad sometimes uh, too selling them when their numbers change. I mean, if the numbers go up, you feel bad for yourself. If they go down, you feel bad for your customer. Right. <laughs> yeah. it's something that's not how it turned out. But yeah, one thing I've done with that is well, I, and I, you know, I, I wish there was a way to signify whether it's pedigree data or actual data. You know, right? Because I seen I seen a a, a a lamb advertised this week on Facebook, and it it had a uh, a birth weight EBV of like, I don't know, 0.2 or something, but it was a single and, and the, and they said it weighed 16 pounds. <laughs> that's, that's a yeah. big deal. 
you know, that's a, yeah. So uh, obviously that is pedigree data, not actual data. Or I, I would hope that that birth weight EBV would have been a lot higher, yeah. you know? So that's kind of misleading. I, I wish, uh, I wish we could tell without having to ask or do well, that's where the accuracies I think are really key. Because, but we yeah. don't, we don't yep. see that. Yeah. yeah. There's very few people that'll show you that. anyway, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's coming. Yeah. So, but yeah, you have to have these accuracies because otherwise, um, Michelle put together a chart a few years ago and she, just explaining it about taking an animal with a high accuracy and one with a low accuracy and, and putting it on a graph of the potential both for good and for bad of where it could shift based off of that accuracy and, and seeing the range based off of the high and low accuracy, it really makes you want to go with the high accuracy sometimes even more than more than one that maybe even be a little better because if it's a little better, but its accuracy is way lower, it has a lot more potential to crash and burn. <laughs> um, and so just kind of thinking through prioritizing the accuracy to make sure you're getting one that actually is what you think it is. I mean, I bought a Ram this last year um, that, you know, his accuracies for growth were probably upper 80s, low 90s, maybe even mid 90s. And he still dropped a point after I, after I got him back here and after some more data was submitted, um, in, in his weight gain, I mean, I'm still happy with him. You know, he's, he's a, his accuracy is like 95, 98 now. <laughs> um, but it's just interesting how even with, with that level of accuracy, you could still see, still see some shifting in the numbers. So, but still, still nice Ram. Actually, uh, Dan is the, the grandsire to, your Ram that you bought um, from Lee at the Virginia Tech sale. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice Ram it was. I've been well, I, yeah, and actually, uh, yeah, he's he's dropped a point and a half, I think, since I've had him. Yeah, and and it's nothing that I've done here because yep. uh, his lambs hadn't even hit the ground by the time his numbers were down. Yeah, yep. I think it was it was probably partially coming from that that grandsire. Yeah, yeah, Caleb. I, I was sitting next to Dan while he was bidding on that ram, and let me tell you, you wasn't going to bid against him. He had eye of the tiger. Yes, nice, nice looking ram. I mean that that sire of that ram. Wow, and you look in the database. That sire is quite the got quite the numbers. Well, he's actually dropped. Yeah, he's, a, he's a looker. He's he's dropped to a one twelve now. Uh huh. Oh darn! Yeah. Just a one twelve. No, I'm just just saying he yeah. was a one fifteen. <laughs> he was he was top of the heap. Yeah, yeah. So it's so it's weird. I, my six two six ram is now top of the heap. That's no longer with us. Oh. Uh, and you know, and that just goes to show you. You know, I don't even know that he increased that much, but the other ones dropped away. There's been three or four top rams this year that have just kind of melted away on their ebvs for some reason yeah and that and that that's the thing i've gone back and forth with is you know it's hard to find proven rams sometimes that have decent data that like i mean you look at the numbers and it's like wow that's a nice ram that i want to use it's going to take me somewhere but at the same time i go back and forth because i'm like 
yeah, but you know where it's taking you. You know exactly what it's doing if it's proven. Um, you know what those numbers are and you can leverage that to move you forward. So like this year, I'm buying a Ram that, I mean, his growth isn't isn't that stellar. I mean, his parasite resistance is actually pretty poor. Um, but his maternals are, are solid and they're really proven. I'm like, yeah, maybe it's not the best in some of those traits, but I know exactly what I'm dealing with. And on the maternal side, I mean, that's the hardest thing to prove out. So we'll give it a shot and I can, you know, keep lambs with, with better growth and parasite resistance, but it's hard to, hard to find proven animals. So, so, so I've heard several people talk about, uh, some, some drops more than, than really big gains. Do you think, uh, any of that has been attributed to the, uh, to the clay center dump of, I don't know, maybe eight or 10,000 animals. Well, it sounds to me like it was, it was Dan's flock. All our numbers went down and his numbers went up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think you're right on that. I think that, I think that things shuffled, uh, with all that. Maybe. Cause there was probably maybe a dozen or two, do- uh, maybe 15 or 20 flocks provided rams to them. So there was some, there's a lot of connection mm-hmm. there, you know, that ties into the rest of us. Yeah. And I, I don't, and, and it, I've heard that that data is good data because it's, it's, it was eight years worth of data. Uh, so it's should be fairly accurate. Uh, but my thought is that, that I'd like to see it in the system for at least a year uh, to see if it holds true. Mm-hmm. See if it settles, it settles yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. I, something, something definitely mixed a lot of things up. And I know that some of uh, Lee's animals had been used out <clears throat> there as well. So, you know, that's, it's possible that that definitely pulled some down. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm, I'm not connected maybe to that. So maybe my animals, you know, stayed pretty much, you know, in my flock, uh, you know, I'm immune to that, except for two of my rams definitely got yanked. Yeah. Yeah, I've had one go up, maybe two go up and and one go down. So, um, and not much. I mean, uh, one of them dropped down to where um, he's below the stud certified now. I mean, he, he dropped like a, a three quarters of a point and it dropped him yeah. below, <laughs> below the threshold of being stud certified, you know, and he's got 175, 200 lambs in the system. So, you know, his accuracy is, is really good, you know, and got a lot of progeny in the system. So something had, you know, something happened that affected him. Yeah. Sure. Cause I've not even used him yet. So. <laughs> what you? What me. I just got him January, yeah. so he's nine years old. I'm just hoping he lives to where I can use him. <laughs> well, that looks like a great place to stop uh, our second part two. Uh, you can tell it's uh, hard to stay focused and stay on topic with three guys that have a lot in common and and uh, um, have ideas and, and want to know more and want to try things, so... Uh, Hopefully you learned a lot from our mistakes and our successes and some of the things that we've talked about. So 
Uh, look forward to part three with Dan coming up. Thank you. Well, everyone, we hope you're enjoying the podcast so far, and, and hopefully it's sparking some questions in your mind as you're thinking about your operations and thinking about what you can do to improve. Maybe you're new and, and thinking about questions of, of how you can continue raising your sheep and, and things that you're learning and things you still have questions about. Send us an email, uh, podcast at sheepthings.com. We'll get those emails and uh, we'll, we'll be happy to answer your questions. And uh, after we get a few questions, periodically we'll actually do a podcast uh, with question and answer and we'll answer your questions right on the podcast here so you can listen to our answers and and we're happy to answer any questions that we can and hopefully this podcast is is generating those questions in your mind as you start thinking about it but hopefully it's answering questions too you come to this podcast ready to learn and and uh, I know I'm always learning something new talking with these people people that I've I've known before people that I haven't and You always learn something new. And so hopefully we can help answer your questions, but we can't answer your questions unless you send them to us. So again, that's podcast at cheapthings.com, podcast at cheapthings.com. Email us your questions and we'll be happy to answer them uh, coming up here soon. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things podcast. Stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback, so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments. Thank you, and see you later.